So welcome to a special edition of the Science of Fiction. Yeah, regular listeners, I'm sorry, sorry if we've disappointed you by not having our uh, standard Sunday night slot, but um, we're doing it as something a little bit different. Yes, so some of you may know there's, there's a movie out uh, quite recently that uh, got quite a lot of interest, and uh, we brought in our resident mathematician uh, to go on about his excitement about it. Hello, hi. Our resident mathematician is James Grime. Hi, everyone. Hi. So, what, what is this movie? Yes, which movie are we talking about? <laughs> you should know. Well, we're going to talk about uh, Star Trek Into Darkness. I'm very excited uh, to talk about Star Trek Into Darkness. I hope you are as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, ex- exciting. Though we're not going to talk too much about it because I haven't seen it. Right, yes, I have just seen it. It's just come out in the UK. I was there front and centre uh, well, as soon as I could. Uh, so I have seen it. So I'm well, going to try and keep it to myself. But I would like to ask you what you thought of it, but before mm. that, uh, what did you think of uh, the first new Star Trek movie? Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. So so the new Star Trek universe, well, that was 2009, the film Star Trek. Uh, and finally, oh, we could get away from all this detail we were getting bogged down in. If you're fans of Star Trek, we're getting bogged down. People who cared that things made sense the whole way along were like, but 20 years ago we made an episode where something slightly different happened. And then and then the film Star Trek came along and it was exciting and new again. It was it was just a relief. But confusingly named. Confusingly named Star Trek. Yeah, not Star Trek 11. Not well, that that would be even more confusing. Yeah. Star Trek we've started again would have been a good name. Yeah, well, we'll call it Star Trek 2009. I think that's the... Uh... The, the, the Wikipedia standard nomenclature. Is it? Right, then, then, Star then Trek we'll stick with Brackets that. 2009 movie. We'll stick with that. However, uh, so the new film, of course I'm not going to say anything, but it carries on in that vein. I think I've seen most of the new movie because I've watched the trailer. Yes, we, you'll have seen lots if you've watched the trailers and the things they put out, but, you know, that's Hollywood. I, I, it was a trailer I stopped watching on the ground, so I thought, oh, I think I'm going to spoil the entire movie. But one of the nice things about the new films is that they go back to the original crew, and it is like, like a slightly like a greatest hit, so um, that's what we're going to do today, because yes. we're going to go back to the original series, the original crew, uh, so it's no, no next generation... No of the old movies, uh, so no, none of that. You know, and, not, not, and none of the new movies either. None of the new movies and uh, you know, none of the sort of lens flares, none of, none of all of that. We're talking about when colour TV was great. That was it. <laughs> yes. No HD, it's just colour. Yeah, well, hey, the Star Trek, the original series, fantastic, big fan. Thank you. 
that was the theme tune to the original series of Star Trek. And Andy told me when we were, when we were planning this, uh, oh, you have to make sure it's the one with the theremin. And while I was looking into this, um, according to some bits of Wikipedia, the fact that it's a theremin is a common misconception, and actually it's a mix of a soprano vocal and a flute and various things mixed together to be ethereal. It sounds like a theremin. <laughs> yes, and the, I think they added the female voice in the second season. I can say things like that because I've just been through all my DVD box sets. Oh, so this is, has, has preparing... Uh, all... I have prepared for this, yes. And it's been extensive preparation with a lot of uh, detailed research and... Uh... Yeah, well, it was the best research I've ever done. As an academic, I got to sit and watch my Star Trek DVDs. I loved it. Is that's, that's a long trek. It was. It, it was, was a long trek. I, it, it, was a, it was a pleasure to begin with. By the end, it was starting to be a little bit difficult. How much misogyny could you cope with? Uh, see, all that kind of thing is in the third season. Yes. Is, is it, so it gets more misogynist in the first it's, Yes, and all, the, all the, uh, the Shatner strange acting choices are all in the third season, where really the, the hand was off the rudder at that point. <laughs> well, what I love is you... Um, so I'm going to just make a Next Generation comment, but the beginning of the Next Generation, you, you turn it on and you go... Ah, we've gone to the future. There are now no misogyny, except all the women have to wear very short skirts. Hey, no, and the men wore short skirts as well. Did you not see that? No. <laughs> In the first season, no, everyone wore the same dress. The men were wearing it as well. But they have they, trousers? They called it something like a, a skort or something <laughs> like that. Yes. Yes, the men... No, without trousers. Without the men were wearing it because in the future, dress, trousers means nothing. But I don't remember ever seeing oh, yeah. Patrick Stewart's legs. Oh yeah, I can, I can, I'll show you, I'll show you the, the men in the uniforms. So yes, this, we can this, this Wikipedia will be further this. research. Wow, okay, you learn something new. But, but while we're talking about uniforms, there's of course the, the, one of the big questions ah. of Star Trek. Nicely done. Fantastic, <laughs> yes. So there's this trope that the red shirts are most likely to die. And so there is a, a clip from the, the original series here of Spock and Kirk discussing what are their chances of survival. Mr. Spock, you are second in command. This will be a dangerous hunt. Either one of us, by himself, is expendable. Both of us are not. Captain, there are approximately 100 of us engaged in this search against one creature. The odds against you and I both being killed are... 2,228.7 to 1. 2,228.7 to 1. Those are pretty good odds, Mr. Spock. And they are, of course, accurate, Captain. Of course. Well, I hate to use the word, but logically, with those kind of odds, you might as well stay. But please stay out of trouble, Mr. Spock. That is always my intention, Captain. So when you know, Kirk and Spock and McCoy are beaming down to the planet and Ensign Jimmy, uh, they all beam down to the planet. You, you putting yourself in there as the Ensign? Uh, oh, um, I guess I'm not McCoy, so... Uh... <laughs> no, that was sly. It's, I, I'm going to put myself in Star Trek <laughs> canon now, right now. <laughs> I, I would love to be with Kirk and Spock on the Starship Enterprise. That would be a dream come true. Even a red shirt. Because, yeah, so the red shirts are supposed to die. Always. Always. And, well, they die a lot. So, if you do the research, and I have, <laughs> right, so there were 59 deaths in the three seasons of Star Trek. Uh, now, 
out of the 59 deaths, 16 were off screen. Okay, so we don't know who they were. So the, these aren't even named... Well, they might be named yeah. characters, but they're not characters you've they ever, were, ever seen. They were things like there was a, you know, a disease going through the ship and, you know, and the, the ship is getting attacked and, and people died off screen that were just reported you know, to Uhura and people like that. So out of the 43 deaths we saw on screen, uh, 25 of them were red shirts. That's 25 out of 43, uh, which is about 58%. Uh, so 58% of the deaths were red shirts. If you compare that to the gold shirt, uh, that's 10. Uh, 10 out of the 43, which is not so much. What's that? That's about 25%, something yeah. like that. That's quite a quarter of them. Uh, so it does seem like being a red shirt is worse than being a gold shirt. But the best of all is blue? Yeah, the best of all is blue, yeah. So there was uh, eight deaths out of 43 were science. For scientists or medics. Or yeah, science and medics. Those are the blue shirts. Where do mathematicians go? Scientists? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, scientists and medics. You're safe. Yeah, I am. I'm in the blue shirt category, yeah. So, which is only about, what, 15% or something like that. Yeah, 16%. My, I get the feeling this is headed towards a big bar. but. But, right. But. So that's what everyone says. Red shirts are most likely to die. The problem is you would expect them to be the most likely to die if there were more red shirts. The more red shirts you have, the more of them will die. That's what you would expect. But you do have to counter for the fact that you have to hire more if they kept dying. Say that again. If they keep dying, you have to get more. You do have to you hire have to them more, yeah. We can do those figures as well, yeah. <laughs> I've done the analysis. I've done that analysis too, yeah. Okay. Uh, so the problem is, that is, turns out to be the case. Uh, the red shirts, there are four times as many red shirts as there are gold shirts. So you would expect, well, four times as many, if everything being equal. Assuming all shirt colours go into combat equally. Yeah, now that's... And what turns out then is, out of the red shirts, and there are people who have written technical schematics about how many of red shirts there are on the ship and how many gold shirts there are. So if we do that, out of the 239 uh, red shirts, uh, and that's uh, engineering, security and operations, uh, 25 die, which is, what, 25 out of 239? It's about 10%. About 10%-ish. Uh, just a little bit over 10%. If you compare that with the gold shirts, now out of the gold shirts, there are uh, 55. So 10 out of 55 gold shirts died, which is more along the lines of 18%. So actually, being a red shirt is not the riskiest occupation. No, it's not. In short, it's not. Uh, because there's just more red shirts. You don't want to be a gold shirt. If you're sitting at operations, if you're flying the ship, these consoles tend to blow up, so for some reason. But it does seem a really bad design. It's a terrible design. Um, but we're sticking to maths, not physics. So yes, we're fine. Yeah. I don't know why they put small explosives into their uh, instruments and equipment on the Starship Enterprise, but they did. But it turns out that that's the worst place to be because it blows up in your face. And the red shirts are not then uh, the most likely to die. However, if we restrict this to security... Now, security, uh, there's about 90 security uh, operators, I don't know what you call it, any agents on the ship. Uh, so if we talk, if we restrict it to that, uh, let's see how many, 18 out of 90 died, which is 
So, we're back at the same level as for gold shirts. We are back at the same level as for gold shirts. You're just slightly worse if you're security, but you would expect that. As the line of first response for a security incident. But if you're a gold shirt, you perhaps would not have signed up to have instruments blow up in your face. Mr. Spock by Nerf Herder, who uh, take me back to my uh, <laughs> to my youth. So, uh, talking of Mr. Spock, one of the uh, great uh, sort of celebrated episodes of Star Trek: The Original Series was a mock time, or you may know that as the Pon Far episode. That was a good episode where we learn more about the character of Spock. Is that the first time we go to Vulcan? That's the first time we go to Vulcan. We learn about Vulcan culture and Vulcan biology. So Vulcanology? If you like, if you like. <laughs> or is that the study of volcanoes? I think that may be the study of volcanoes, okay. yeah. I wondered why we had a department for it at the university. Well, that may just be full of Star Trek fans. It's quite possible. <laughs> Maybe by accident. We've unearthed the mystery. Right, but, but, uh, it's a great episode, and uh, are we going to introduce a, a clip from this episode? Yeah, so, he did, so this is um, Spock explaining why he must return to the planet Vulcan and choose a mate. How do Vulcans choose their mates? Haven't you wondered? I guess the rest of us assume that it's done quite logically.
is not. We shield it with ritual and customs shrouded in antiquity. You humans have no conception. It strips our minds from us. It brings a madness which rips away our veneer of civilization. It is the pawn far of mating. There are precedents in nature, Captain. The giant eel birds of Regulus Five. Once each 11 years, they must return to the caverns where they hatched. On your Earth, salmon. They must return to that one stream where they were born spawn or die in trying but you're not a fish mr spark you're no nor am i a man i'm a vulcan i'd hope that would be spared this but the ancient drives are too strong eventually they catch up with us we are driven by forces we cannot control to return home and take a wife or die. I, li I like um, that Kirk isn't quite up on biology. It turns like, what's biology? Well, I see. I love. I love that clip. This is an early sort of season uh, episode of Star Trek, and there you can hear uh, sort of Nimoy and Shatner. They're really acting their socks off in that clip. They're really selling it, uh, and people do mock Shatner's uh, acting choices. But I will defend them to the hilt. In this episode, or in all episodes, I, he he will drive a scene with. The, the energy it needs, which allows Nimoy then to really step back and play the All emotionless right. Vulcan. Uh, so, I, you know, they made those choices for a reason. I will defend them. But the reason we played that clip is because we can talk about uh, the mathematics of biology. So this idea of only uh, reproducing once every seven years, thats wasn't mentioned explicitly in the episode, but later on they do talk about uh, Vulcans can only reproduce once every seven years. You do find this in uh, real life, in, in uh, species on Earth, if I can say that, uh, that reproduce once every 11 years or you know, 13 years or 17 years. I'm thinking in particular in the insect world of the cicadas of North America. Who I think are just about to um, come up to one yeah. of their re re reproduction moments. Yeah, that's right. It's going to happen. Uh, it's happening now, in fact, I think. They're going for it. They're, do they're doing it right they're now. They're doing it right now. Yeah. And there's going to be uh, not just one, I don't know what they call subspecies, but several subspecies of cicadas have all come out at once. So this is a prize because all the numbers you just said were prime numbers. Yes, yeah. So all these numbers are prime numbers and there's a reason why they think that these uh, animals reproduce in sort of a prime number cycle because it puts them out of sync with predators. Uh, so if a predator comes out once every three years or once every fourth year, uh, by being a prime number, uh, the cicadas are, are out of step. 
So a prime number being a number that isn't divisible by any other numbers but itself and one. Exactly. So it won't, if the predator has any different cycle less than it, it's going to take a long time for them to meet so, up. So, yeah, for example, if the cicadas were coming out once every 15 years and the, uh, the predator was coming out once every five years, uh, these uh, cycles would sync up you know, every third generation. But by being a prime number, by coming out every 17 years, uh, they won't link up for, gosh, uh, something like 85 years, something like that. In other words, for 17 generations of predators, and therefore the predators never get a taste for the cicadas because it's such a long time. So there's a kind of log logical loop here because the predators never get a taste for the cicadas. Maybe they'll just won't prey on them at all, even when they Yeah, when they exactly. Are. So it's uh, evolutionary. Yeah. So uh, to bring it back to Star Trek, then uh, maybe we can say that something similar was happening on Vulcan to give rise to such unusual Vulcan biology. So there's some very logical predators. I, I'm saying uh, some predators that feed on logical animals. <laughs> oh, they could be illogical predators. Yes. I like the idea of a logical predator. I think it would be nice to, to do. Well, I guess a Vulcan would, would prefer uh, a, a number that, that would be a power of two, I think, <laughs> as a logical species. But uh, evolution determines that uh, they come out once every seven years. But of course there are creatures in the Star Trek universe that um, have yeah. re reproduction following powers of two. So, well, this is, this is the rabbit method of surviving predation. Just having lots of yourself. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we're going to talk about the Tribbles, which is you know uh, one of my favourite episodes, a good fan favourite of Tribbles. We've got a, a Tribble on our on our own table here, haven't we? Yeah, um, unfortunately, it's the empty husk of a Tribble. It used to have a little little. Uh, a is this little, yours? Uh, I, I may have liberated it from my office. Uh, <laughs> it, it used to have a little um, like some kind of device inside, which made it make a kind of buzzing noise and go. Yes. He, he's good at that. He's good. I tried it earlier. Couldn't do it. Yeah. So the episode is a great episode again. These uh, cute little uh, hairballs they, they wear. If you haven't seen the episode, they were hairballs and you stroke them and they purr and they, it relaxes you. And uh, But they breed at a, a huge rate, a geometric rate. Now, I could uh, describe to you what geometric rate means or geometric growth means but i discovered while doing my research that sulu does a really good explanation of geometric growth so i think we should let sulu explain rather than me if you want the mathematics of this mitchell's ability is increasing geometrically that is like having a penny doubling it every day in a month you'll be a millionaire so the idea is geometric growth means that uh, you multiply by a common factor each time. Uh, so in the, in the case of uh, the Gary Mitchell there, it was you know, doubling each time, multiplying by two each time. And this, this, this is a, um, this is, there's a sort of story about the, invent the inventor of chess, uh, yes. who um, the, the, the emperor was so, was so delighted that he asked, he asked the inventor, you know, I'll give you any prize, what would you like? And he said, well, I would like one grain of rice for the first square on my chess chessboard, two for the second square, four for the third square, and so on. And the emperor, of course, you know, agreed to it in a heartbeat because rice is really cheap. Do you mean four or do you mean doubling each time? One, two, four, eight. Ah. Yeah, and, I and, and so on. Um, and so and, and it's, these sound like pretty small numbers, you know, eight grains of rice, yeah, you know, any emperor's got that lying around. 
But of course, by the time you fill the whole chessboard, you've got two to the power of 64. Which is more rice than exists in the world. Is that more than has ever existed? Yes, yeah. I it, think it, so. It's that big. Yes. It's, it's, it's getting onto the um, atoms in the observable universe. Yes. Kind of it, and so scales. Uh, geometric growth grows very quickly. Now, the triples were growing geometrically as well. Uh, Spock makes a similar calculation uh, to explain triple population growth. They seem to be gorged. Gorged? On my grain? Kurt, I am going to hold you responsible. There must be thousands of them. Hundreds of thousands. 1,771,561. That's assuming one triple, multiplying with an average litter of 10, producing a new generation every 12 hours over a period of three days. And that's assuming that they got here three days ago. And allowing for the amount of grain consumed and the volume of the storage compartment. So I remember that episode when, from when I was a kid. I from, saw from that. the first time round. Yeah, from the first time round, I saw it. I used to watch Star Trek on a Sunday afternoon, you know, after my Sunday lunch. It gives me warm, cosy feelings thinking about Star Trek. It takes I'm, me back I'm, to my childhood. I'm guessing this is an original broadcast, though. You're not. No, don't, no. Those been that old. No, thanks. <laughs> for, no, I moisturised. Yeah. You moisturised. Okay. This week on the science of fiction, time machines. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I remember that uh, calculation. I think I remember that figure. Now I'd always assumed uh, that that number was made up. Uh, the writer of the episode was uh, David Gerald, and mm. I had always assumed that he just made up the number because it sounds like something Spock would say. Uh, so when I came to do this for this uh, radio show, I had a look to see how wrong he was. You checked his work. I checked his work and to see how wrong he was. Uh, and it amazed me to discover that David Gerald had done his sums. Wow. Yeah, I was absolutely amazed. So if you take a population of tribbles, which doesn't matter how many, and Spock is saying that with the next generation would be ten times as many. So now you have 10 times as many triples, plus the original triples you started with, that's 11 times as many. Your population has increased by a factor of 11, and it will do that with each generation. Now, in three days, uh, this will happen six times. So, so if you start with one triple, you'll then have 11 triples. You'll then have 121 triples. Which is 11 times 11. Which is 11 times 11. And you'll keep doing this. So six times over. So 11 to the power 6. And 11 to the power 6 is 1,771,561 triples. He got it right. Amazing. I was completely amazed. And I'll add this as well. I emailed David Gerald last week. Uh-huh. I sent him a message. I sent him a message saying I've I've done the calculation and I'd always assumed you'd made it up. And and uh, you know, do you have any you know, have anything to say about it? You know, was it hard to do? He said no, it wasn't hard to do for anyone with a pe- pe- pen and paper. So um, I'm I'm delighted. So, 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 he, so he didn't even farm it out to someone else. No, no, no. Wow. No, yeah, and and I'm delighted. I, I was thrilled. Uh, but it does then kind of suggest if we talk about the biology of it that uh, the Tribble homeworld must be either an inhospitable planet or must have some fearsome predators. Who are never quite explored. Who are never quite explored. But to give this rapid population growth, it would suggest one of those... Oh, they're really tasty. Well, I... I hope they are. I've never tried one, but but maybe in the next Star Trek film, triple burgers. <laughs> they'll just be roasting them. 
Be they're like the dodo. They're spherical though, so they would cook evenly. Yeah, yeah. Mmm, lovely. Oh. Now, now you're making me hungry. So I don't think Zebra is really featured uh, directly in the uh, Star Trek universe, but there is a reason for us playing that. Yes, so uh, one of the most striking images of the original series of Star Trek, and people may remember, are those guys with the half-white face and the half-black face. So these, these, are, these are divided vertically down the middle, as if, as if they're a mirror image, but the colours inverted. Yeah, and it is a striking image, and there were two guys, and one was black on the right-hand side, and one was black on the left-hand side. And one of them was a, a repressed race, and you know, it's an, a metaphor for race relations, uh, which is what Star Trek does. Hmm. Uh, however... Um, Spock and McCoy do seem to be rather amazed that such creatures with dis this distinctive marking could exist. You are certain, Doctor, that this pigmentation is the natural condition of this individual? That's what I've recorded, Mr. Spock. Do we have any knowledge of a planet that could have produced such a race of beings? Negative, Captain. Bones, what do you make of it? Well, I can't give you any specific circumstance that will explain him. Well, judging by looking at him, we know at the very least he is the result of a very dramatic conflict. Spock? 
There's no theory, Captain, from the basic work of Mandel to the most recent nucleotide studies which would explain our captive. All gradations of color, from black to brown to yellow to white, are genetically predictable. We must therefore conclude that this alien is that often unaccountable rarity, a mutation, one of a kind. Yes, I would agree that's the case here. So they do seem rather amazed by that. Yeah, and on the, on the face of it, no pun intended, it does sound pretty... Unbelievable. Uh, but, and you, yes, and, you know, in an in a infinite universe, perhaps we should expect the extremes of biology, uh, but maybe it's not as remarkable as they think it is. Uh, so uh, the mathematics of animal markings uh, is a, a serious subject in uh, biology. Uh, so it was first studied by Alan Turing. Alan Turing, the one and the same of Enigma fame? Uh, Enigma fame, exactly. A World War II code breaker, father of computer science, uh, 20th century mathematician, and in later life, uh, in the 1950s, huh. yeah, so after World War II and all this came out, he started to take an interest in mathematical biology. Yeah, he was interested in why do you get a Fibonacci number of spirals in a sunflower? That was one of the things he was interested in. And the other thing was animal markings, and could he explain... Uh, these animal markings of a leopard, a zebra, mathematically? And I guess the answer is, yes, he could. Ab- absolutely could. So what his equations were turned out to be a, a wave equation. Uh, the chemicals that make uh, uh, animal patterns uh, are in conflict uh, between diffusion and the chemical reactions that are happening that make those animal patterns. And this, this conflict has kind of set themselves up into a wave. So if you can imagine uh, taking a symbol, you take a symbol, like, like a drum symbol, okay. and you, you have a symbol in the shape of a cow. I would, I would definitely buy that Right, symbol. now bash it. Bash that symbol so that you set up a standing wave. Okay. A stationary wave. The peaks and troughs of the stationary wave are where your patterns are. Ah. And that, for that reason, that's why it has sometimes been described as waves on cows. What I found really interesting about this, though, was that we, so we can repeat this in chemistry, we can repeat it on, you know, like symbols and whacking them. When you go look at the body, we cannot find the thing that carries this information. So we cannot find what turns the gene off or what chemical is flowing on. So oh, really? all the modelling works, but we haven't yet got... It doesn't mean there isn't yeah. anything, but we've yet to find... Yeah, there's, there's work still to, still to be done. But I, I think that's really cool that you can predict everything. You can make vest, like petri dishes which have the ways that look like a clownfish or whatever animal you want. But if you go looking at the animals, we've yet to find the so, answer. So we know, we know the theory, we just don't understand the mechanism. But this is very similar to, um, to, to Mendel's work, which is just which yeah. is mentioned in the, the, in the, the clip we yeah. played. That um, the great success there was that he predict, his, his model predicted what the next element to be discovered would be. Now, the, um, the, uh, the creatures, if I may call them that, the aliens in Star Trek with these half-black faces and half-white faces, they are very unusual, but things like that do exist. Uh, in the real world. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking of the uh, Valet's goats. I think that's how you pronounce it. I've only ever seen the word written down. Uh-huh. Uh, Valet's goats, who look almost like these these black and white aliens. Uh, they're half black goat and half white goat, straight down the middle of their body. But the split isn't 
down the the ah. centre of their face. Uh, it's it's halfway along their body. So forward, backwards. So their head, yeah, their head and shoulders and their front two feet are black, and their tail and their back two feet they're they're white, uh, and there is a, a very stark split. Wow. To have a black half and a white half, uh, just like uh, these aliens in Star Trek. So, unlikely but not impossible. Unlikely but not impossible. In the middle of the earth, in the land of Shire, lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire with his long wooden pipe fuzzy woolly toes he lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him bilbo bilbo baggins he's only three feet tall bilbo bilbo baggins the bravest little hobbit of them all now hobbits are peace loving folks you know they're never in a hurry and they take Slow. They don't like to travel away from home They just like to eat and be left alone But one day Bilbo was asked to go On a big adventure to the caves below To help some dwarves get back their gold That was stolen by a dragon in the days of old Bilbo, Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins is only three feet tall Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins Bravest little hobbit of them all Well, he fought with the goblins He battled a troll He riddled with Gollum A magic ring he stole He was chased by wolves Lost in the forest Escaped in a barrel from the elf king's halls Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins The bravest little hobbit of them all so that was the Ballad of Bilbo Baggins, performed by none other than Leonard Nimoy. I, I knew that William Shatner had um, various uh, kind of beat poetry albums, but I had yes. no idea that Nimoy had a music career as well. When it was the 60s, these things <laughs> happened. Who, who, who didn't have a music career? <laughs> yes. Do any of the other people have music careers we don't know about? Uh, not that I Did McCoy try? Uh, no, I did not. I do not believe DeForest Kelly did. <laughs> I, I know Data from the Next Generation. Yes, does. Yes, he does. Um, uh, I don't know of any other ones myself. No, no that's uh, no, that's. I think that's all I know of as well. Oh. But we were talking about uh, our black and white aliens yes, from the Planet Show on. Now, in the whole Infinity. Of the universe, mm -hmm. we could expect strange aliens like this and strange new worlds. That's what we're looking for. Assuming that we can expect aliens and strange new worlds to, ha to exist at all. Yeah, so, uh, so our next concern is, well, how many aliens exist in the Star Trek universe? Uh, which uh, is explained, actually, by McCoy. Uh, Dr. McCoy, of all people, uh, when they, uh, Kirk and McCoy find themselves in reflective mood in uh, Balance of Terror. I look around that bridge. I see the men waiting for me to make the next move. And Bones. What if I'm wrong? Captain, I don't, I don't really expect an answer. But I've got one. 
something I seldom say to a customer, Jim. In this galaxy, there's a mathematical probability of three million Earth-type planets. And in all of the universe, three million million galaxies like this. And in all of that, and perhaps more, only one of each of us. Don't destroy the one named Kirk. So what McCoy's talking about there is the Drake Equation, of course. Yes, that is the Drake Equation. So the Drake Equation is quite famous. Uh, so um, I guess you guys have heard of the Drake Equations yourselves. Yes, yep. I have. Yep. Um, uh, but, but, but for those who haven't... So if I remember correctly, it's actually based on a Fermi Equation, which is a, just the idea of stacking probability after yes. probability. So he's meant to have, at one point, had a lecture, and he's managed got the audience to work out how many piano tuners there are in New York. And he said, well, what's the population? How many people can play the piano? How many different people have you tuned the piano? Things like that. And when he got it down, he then eventually opened up the yellow pages or whatever he had where he was and showed that they got the number exactly right just by using estimate on estimate on estimate. And um, it's quite accurate. So you, to within an order of magnitude? I think he got it right as this legend, but oh. um, did it ever happen? I don't know. I don't know if that's been recorded. I've sort of heard of that calculation. I've heard of that story. I don't know how true... Yeah, I've heard it many is. stories. But, but it's a good exercise. People can try it as an exercise, try and estimate such a thing as that. So Drake Equations is doing the same. Uh, Drake Equation is trying to estimate uh, the number of alien civilizations in our universe, or in our galaxy, mm -hmm. with radio technology, uh, particularly with ah. radio technology, uh, so that we could pick them up with our huge... Radio receivers. Because otherwise, if an alien exists in a forest and no one is there to hear its radio yeah. signals yeah. and so on. So, the, the bit I love about this equation most is the last one is L, the length of time for which such civilizations release detectable signals into space. Because that's really important is that after a certain point, and we're actually approaching that now, our signals stop blasting out into the E frame all because we start using things like satellites and digital where it broadcasts back towards us. And digital broadcasts just sound like noise. Well, I, I don't know if that was their thinking, though, when they came up with this equation, because they came up with this in something like 1961. Right. Uh, so they were just thinking about you know, radio technology of the time. But you're right, so, the, so some, some of the factors in the equations are you know, the rate of star formation, uh, how many stars have planets, how many of those planets would have life on them, right. or, or Earth-like then how many of those planets have intelligent life on them? So it's a... Life as we know it. Yeah, life as we know it. Do we know any planets with intelligent life? Uh, no, that's, that's one of the big estimates in the equation. Yeah, we, so we can estimate uh, a lot of the factors. Intelligent life is a really big guess. Uh, sometimes I wonder if it's here. Well, we know at least... <laughs> Do we? Do we? <laughs> that's the one I'm debating. We know, in theory, yeah. So in theory, we know at least, and I know what you're saying. <laughs> so yes, in theory, we have one planet we know of with perhaps having what we call intelligent life. Yeah, so you know the probability isn't zero. That's, that's the idea. And so you can estimate how many planets might have radio technology. Current estimates, well, they do range from you know, tens of millions down to just Earth being alone. So there's Aww. a lot of estimation going on. But the, the reason for the equation was just a, a, a point of 
you know, conversation, a point of debate to start a conversation about it? It's a very difficult question, but I mean, just as something difficult, I can appreciate, yeah, don't say, we don't know, let's, let's go home. Yeah. Uh, what exactly would we need to know to, 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 to get an accurate answer is the question. I suppose it's one that this equation tries to answer. Yeah, it's, it's trying, yes. Well, and this is the thing, if we find life on Mars, it's going to be quite boring life, but it would mean we'd have another place where life had occurred. Yeah, Maybe. so so it wouldn't... Oh, hello. Could you sit over there and be quiet, please? You're doing really well. Um, Try that again. So if we found life on Mars, that would be a really big deal. Not because it'd be intelligent, just because we found life somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, but it, yeah, and the important thing is it wouldn't be intelligent life. So it would not be part of Drake's equation, which is only about intelligent mm -hmm. life. Yes, because... But, of course, knowing any statistic about life would help a little bit. So Gene Rodenberry, the, the, the creator of Star Trek, was actually using Drake's equation in his pitch uh, to justify the number of aliens that these uh, adventurers will meet in the galaxy. Which is a lot more than you might predict from the number of aliens we've experienced so, so far. far. Yes. He uh, did try to use Drake equations. He couldn't remember the, the equation itself off the top of his head. He did make up his own version. Uh, uh, just, and, it's, and it's really a bit of a nonsense uh, equation. Uh, and it has all kinds of silly things. It doesn't explain the parameters and things are raised to the power one. So Drake, who visited the set as the story goes, saw Rodenberry's version of the equation and did point out that things raised to the power one was just the number itself. Uh, but uh, these sort of mathematical mistakes did eventually end up on screen, I'm afraid. Uh, one of the most notorious mathematical Ooh. gaffes uh, is uh, this. Ready, Mr. Spock? Affirmative, Captain. Gentlemen, this computer has an auditory sensor. It can, in effect, hear sounds. By installing a booster, we can increase that capability on the order of one to the fourth power. So no one points out to Kirk that one to the power four is still one. Yeah. So, so that's one times one times one times one. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so raise it to a magnitude of one is what he's saying. Yeah, so unfortunately... These things got through, but you know, in, in the in the you know the, in the in the heat of the moment, maybe people you know, don't have time to, to nip it. He was on trial at the time. He was uh, having a court martial at the time. What was he guilty of? Gross uh, with math mathematical inaccuracies. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, I think so. I have saved the world in the movie. So naturally, there's folks who think I must know what to do. But just because you've seen me on your TV doesn't mean I'm any more enlightened than you. And while there's a part of me and that guy you've seen up there on that screen, I am so much more. And I wish I change this world for sure but I even sleep and breathe and bleed and feel sorry to disappoint you but I'm real 
love to help the world and all its problems. But I'm an entertainer, and that's all. So the next time there's an asteroid or a natural disaster, I'm flattered that you thought of me, but I'm not the one to call. And while there's a part of me... So following from um, listening to the dulcet tones of Leonard Nimoy earlier in the show, that was William Shatner. Yes, uh, uh, one of the, the most successful non-singers in the singing business. <laughs> now that was from his album Has Been. Uh, which is a great album. So people take the mick out of William Shatner's uh, singing career. He had an album called Transformed Man in the 60s, which you should see, by the way. The album cover is hilarious. He's dressed up as Kirk. He, do, he does Lucy in the Sky with diamonds in that, yeah. and it does sound like someone dies halfway through. Now, <laughs> now, bless him, he was trying to do something and it didn't work. What, mixing Shakespeare and yes. the Beatles? Yes. Yeah, it... He tried something and it didn't work. However, <laughs> Has Been which is a great album. Uh, I, what, do you not agree? I, I, think, I think it has certain merit. <laughs> I think it's brilliant. I love Has Been. Uh, Real There is about his, I guess it's reflecting back on his career right. as Kirk. And do you know who's not real? Who's not real? Androids. Ah, I see what you did there. Yeah. Seamless, seamless. So, so um, Androids, yeah, what are they? So, Androids, we're going to talk about Android civilization next, uh, because Kirk, in his career as a Starship captain, uh, managed to talk computers or androids to death on no <laughs> less of four separate occasions. That, that, that is an achievement. I've never talked anyone to death. Yes. So he managed, did, you, did you get a scout badge for that? So, he managed to do this through the use of paradox and dilemmas. So, he travelled through time and shot his grandfather? That sort of idea, yes. That sort of idea, in which case we can uh, give you an example of Kirk uh, talking an android to death. But there was no explosion. I lied. But he lied. Everything Harry tells you is a lie. Remember that. Everything Harry tells you is a lie. Now listen to this carefully, Norman. I am lying. You say you are lying, but if everything you say is a lie, then you are telling the truth. But you cannot tell the truth because everything you say is a lie. But you lie, you tell the truth, but you cannot for you lie. Illogical. Illogical. Please explain. You are human. Only humans can explain their behavior. So this is an example of the liar's paradox, uh, which could be more simply put as this sentence is false. Uh, so that would be a paradox. Yeah, so if that's a true statement... It's saying it's false, so it's a kind of self-contradictory. If it's a false sentence, then the sentence is actually true, which is again self-contradictory. Back where we started. Yes. So the liar's paradox. Uh, however, the liar's paradox actually turns up in mathematics in one of the most important results of the twentieth century. Which is, of course, uh, Gödel's incompleteness theorems. Yeah, great. So, at the beginning of the 20th century, they had become really keen, mathematicians had become really keen on the fundamentals of mathematics, the logic of mathematics. This is the theorem basically tells us that maths is rubbish and doesn't work. 
uh, not quite as bad as some people make out. But it, but it, it, it says that not all that you can't do maths. It, it says you can't get an answer <laughs> uh, for everything. Uh, that, that's, I, what's the point of doing maths if we can't work everything out? It tells you that within a particular mathematical framework, you are not able to prove all true statements using that framework. It does mean you can prove it if you go, decide to go outside the framework. So you can prove things in number theory using geometry. You can use other areas of mathematics to solve problems. So you can cheat. You can cheat. <laughs> yes. So, so mathematics is safe. Yay! Uh, yeah, yeah, mathematics is safe. So let's, let's talk about the, the details a little bit more. So in mathematics, we have these ideas, the basic truths of mathematics, uh, which we call axioms. If we're talking about arithmetic, the basic truths would be zero is a natural number. Uh, sometimes you might want to say one is a natural number. It depends on how you look at it. Uh, but then you say each number has a successor. So then you go from one to two to three and you build this ladder of natural numbers. And you define how you can add them. Or yeah. perhaps that follows from the... Well, it, you can have even more basic uh, truths. And, that, and then from these basic truths, you can then prove... Fundamental things such as one plus one equals two. Because mathematicians actually care about that. Because the rest of us, we know you go and you, you order a coke, fine. and if you order two cokes, you'll be annoyed if you don't have one plus one. It would it would really bug you. But you sit down with a textbook and make sure it's happening. Of course, of course. The, the irony here is that if you go into a pub and ask for two half pints and you got one pint, that would not be what you wanted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Next time you find out one plus one does not equal two, you'll be very disappointed. <laughs> right? And the mathematicians will say, well, you didn't check, did you? <laughs> we told you you should have looked closer. Nate's going to be telling me it is not obvious that one is greater than naught. Well, we can assume <laughs> one is greater than naught, perhaps. Perhaps we can define one to be greater than naught. What about two greater than one? Is that a little bit more we, difficult? In fact, no, we do you. define one to be greater than naught. Yes, that is one of the axioms. So that, that, that is, that's not clear. That, that had to be assumed. Yeah, so these are, these are the most basic things you can assume. So how many assumptions are there? Uh, there's about uh, eight or nine. Nine, I think. For the whole of maths? Uh, no, this is for arithmetic I'm talking about. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's because arithmetic is a good place to start. So yeah, there's I mean, nine. That's where I started. Yeah, so nine. There are n imagine teaching <laughs> uh, infant school instead of teaching counting. We'll teach them the nine p piano axioms of arithmetic. I think it's the way to go. I think. And then to say, work out the rest for yourself. I think this is where, where if you look so at on. the educational system, maybe this is where we're going wrong. We we don't start with the basics. Quick, someone called Go. <laughs> We could so, do a Mr. Men cartoon about it. Um, so you have these basic axioms, right? Now, what uh, Gödel worked out, Gödel was an American-Austrian uh, mathematician. What he worked out... His hair did look a bit like the guys we were talking earlier. Yeah, his, his, <laughs> his hair is amazing, isn't it? His haircut, his hair is half black on one side and half white <laughs> on the other side. If only he knew he was going to be in a show about Star Trek. <laughs> so what's, what Gödel did... Uh, was uh, he showed that uh, mathematical statements uh, can be turned into numbers. Which is it's actually quite a prescient realisation, given that now people do mathematics using computers. Yeah, well, I guess so. I, I don't know if it will carry through. I mean, I know the theory of it, I'm afraid. But uh, if you can turn a statement into a number, then you can combine statements using arithmetic. So it, what it turned out to be is that if a framework of mathematics is complicated enough to contain arithmetic 
then you can use the arithmetic it contains to, to prove, yes, and express and prove statements uh, using its own framework. It's a slightly complicated idea, but I don't know if you can follow me on that. Well, well having studied it, I can, but <laughs> okay. it, it took more than a two-minute podcast. <laughs> So if, so if we can do that, what Gödel then realised is that you could always construct uh, a, a mathematical statement that is equivalent to the liar's paradox. But instead of saying uh, this sentence is false, uh, it was changed slightly to uh, this sentence is not provable or this statement is not provable. That is a small but important change. Uh, but if you can always construct a statement like that, then that means that there are statements within that framework that are true that you cannot prove. Uh, and, and that is a problem. Or it could be considered a problem. This did make uh, 20th century mathematicians uh, end up with smoke coming out of their ears like, like <laughs> the androids out of Star Trek. And of course, this was still used 100 years later when Data was on the Enterprise D and had to shut down the Borg. Well, he used a sort of Escher-type uh, sort of paradoxical picture, didn't he? So he moved he? on to geometry. They moved <laughs> on to geometry, but it, I guess it must have been part of Starfleet training. So by then, how did data, was, data was protected from it because uh, he had a positronic brain. Oh, so positronic is the way forward. And I can't make a data protection act. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think that, you just did. <laughs> I think on that bombshell, that might be a good place to end. Maybe so. So um, James has published a... Um, a yeah, an article a, on, yeah. On, on sort of the mathematics of Star Trek. So, it's been a lifetime in the making. You can read that article on aperiodical.com. So if you want to check his working, that's the place to do it. Uh, and otherwise, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at James Grime on Twitter. And, and correct your mistakes. Uh, you yeah. won't find any. All complaints to James. Um, of course, you can find um, links to all this from the show notes on scienceandfiction.co.uk, where you can also subscribe to our podcast for future special episodes like this one. And thanks for listening. It's called a pie chopish. We are joined today by uh, an extra special guest. We are joined by Lottie. Say hello, Lottie. Hello. Excellent. So, can you do maths? Can you count to ten? Ten. Can you, can you do one, two, three? One, two, three. What comes next? Yes, yeah. you did it. Yes, four, exactly. See, you're as good as I am. <laughs>